This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll break into the chapter at verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Paul speaking. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if there were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Let's just stop there. Paul in this uh, portion of 1 Corinthians is very obviously using the analogy of the human body being like the body of Christ, the church on earth. And as he speaks here, he shows us how the, the body is to function properly and one of the ways that must do that is to recognize that the worth of each and every part. Each and every part of the body is of equal importance. There are some parts of the body which are an open display. There are some parts, because of modesty, has to be hidden from view, but each are vitally important, the seen and the unseen. There are people in the body of Christ who are in the public eye, and they are upfront and perhaps on platforms, and naturally they get the more plaudits because of that. But there are many parts of the body of Christ that are hidden from public view. They function best behind the scenes. They have neither desire or the gifting to be on any platform. But those who are on platforms are dependent on those who are behind the scenes. That's the way that it works. Each of them are important. In fact, they could not effectively do their job except for those who are doing the unseen part. Let me give you a great example. Reinhard Bonnke, the great German evangelist, for many, many years evangelizing in Africa, 
Sometimes up to over a million people would come to his crusades. They counted them by the acre rather than by the people. And, but he said that the success of his ministry uh, was not the publicity and even the miracles that happened. He says it was behind the scenes because there was a group of dedicated intercessors. While he was preaching for that hour out in the public view, they were hidden away in another tent that nobody ever saw, that nobody knew. And all they did was just pray and pray and pray and pray and ask God to break through and to bless and to stop demonic forces doing what they tried to do and stop it. And he says that caused great success. And everywhere he went, they followed. That was their ministry, unseen, done behind backs. By the way, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, which we didn't read, it begins with Paul speaking about the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that are divided amongst the body. And it ends with a portion which we didn't read that talks about the various ministry giftings, the types that God uses that the Holy Spirit develops within the body of Christ. And so he sandwiches that, the meat inside is the part that we just read, uh, the, the body of Christ, that those giftings are within the body of Christ, and each one and every one has a part to play. And so we are clear here in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul is speaking about the analogy of the human body being like the body of Christ on earth. He also makes it very clear about Christ being the head of the body. We're the body on earth, but Christ is the head of the body in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he writes, And he put all things under his feet, and he, God, put all things under his feet, his son, Jesus, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 4, 15, 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so, so far, simply enough, we have seen the, clearly the relationship that is required uh, between the, the harmony of the parts of the body working together, every joint supplying, every part playing its part within the body. We see the, the interconnectedness, the interdependability that we're all dependent upon one another. We've seen also the vital importance of the body and the head together. Now, it's obvious that either through accident or through violence, if somebody loses their head, their body will immediately die. It cannot function without the head. That's very, very obvious. But I want you to take you back to the first portion of Scripture that we just read there, just for a moment. And I want to point out something which I feel is very profound. And even though we read it together just a moment ago, I don't think we saw it. Sometimes we read things, but we don't see it. I know I do. I've been reading this Bible for decades, and I'm still seeing things that I read a thousand times, but I didn't see it. You know what I mean? So, uh, go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 
and, and reading from verse 12, for as the body is one, has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, have all been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smell? But now God has set the members, each one, in, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were just, if they were all one member, where would the body be? Now notice this here coming. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. But note the next bit. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So who's the head? Christ. Who's the feet? Us. So as important it is for the body to function by the head, it's just as important for the head to function by the body. Did you get that? See what he said? Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. Much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So this is just very, very important. Paul is showing us the importance of the body relating to the head, but now he's showing us the importance of the head relating to the body. And just as much as the body needs the head, he's saying the head needs the body. Now we may argue and say, but God is God. He doesn't need anyone or anything. God existed long before we ever came along absolutely true. There's no question or doubt about that whatsoever. Yet, when it comes to Christ's mission on earth, when it comes to the saving of men's souls, when it comes to the evangelization of the whole world, he needs his body to do that. He's in heaven. He's not here. He's in heaven. He did not set angels or celestial beings to do this mission. He has us. In fact, he is only us. He's entrusted his whole mission, the very reason why he came to this earth, the very reason why he went to that cross to die, the very reason why he left on his life, to win the world to himself, and he left us to do that for him, to evangelize this world on his behalf. So the head will never say to the body, I don't need you. I have no place for you. You are no good to me. No, no, no. He needs you, literally needs you to be his body on the earth. Do you remember how he sent out 70 disciples two by two? And they went out, in a sense, evangelizing. And they preached the gospel of the kingdom. And they healed the sick and they cast out devils and they came back all excited. And out of that 70, what did they do? He chose 12 to be his apostles. The, the very foundation of his church. Uh, and he was with them for a little while. And then he, he went to the cross and he died and he rose again, went back to heaven. And those 12 apostles were the ones then that had to carry on his mission. And in the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, they went out into every Every part of this world they went out into evangelizing, taking that mission of winning souls, going out into the world to win souls for Christ. That was Christ's mission. 
to win this world. And they were the ones to do it, to start it. And that was 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years later, men and women are still going out into this world. Go you into all the world and preach the gospel. They're still doing that because he doesn't have anybody else to do it. And we're the only generation that's living today to do this. There is no other generation doing this, only us today. So this is our function, this is our role today. In fact, he will not come back until this is complete. In, Mark, or sorry, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 3, it says, Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That's happening to this very day. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And then, and only then, will the end come. So Christ came to this earth, died to save men's souls, had a mission to win this world through his body on earth, which is us. And so the Lord needs you. He needs you to be a functioning part of his body on earth. Christ has left it up to each and every generation to fulfill his mission. And we are the only body of his on earth right now. We are it. There is no one else. So he will never say, I don't need you. I have no place for you. He needs every single part of his body to be functioning for him. Well, you may say, well, I must be one of those hidden parts because I don't feel all that important. Well, consider for a moment all your vital organs are hidden, aren't they? You've never seen your heart, you've never seen your kidney, you've never seen your liver, you've never seen your spleen, you've never seen that, except on an x-ray, but you've never seen it. They're hidden, and they're hidden for a good reason. But they're vitally important, are they not? You wouldn't want to be without one of them, sure you wouldn't. And so it's not a question of being seen, it's a question of being part of the functioning body of Christ. Whatever part it may be, maybe just a little part, but it's an important little part and it's needed. Every part of your body is necessary. It needs you to be functioning. There's a term that's used today on social media. Uh, social platforms like Twitter and Instagram or Facebook and so forth, there are people who are called influencers. And they're usually the, the celebrity type or the wannabe celebrity type. Uh, these Celebrities, nobody knows who they are, but suddenly they're on our screens and they get all the, you know, the exposure of the day. And then suddenly uh, advertising or companies say, well, that's a means of advertising for us. If they could just, uh, if they could just advertise our goods. You know, and if they've got a million followers on Instagram, 
You know, if they got a million followers on Twitter, I mean, that, that's good advertising for us. If they would just say, you know, this is the ointment I wear, this is the perfume I like, or this is the shave and lotion I use, or whatever the case may be, then suddenly the sales go through the roof and they get a portion. And many of them become very rich through this. They're called influencers. And so they influence a lot of people. And the more you've got on your Twitter feed and your Instagram account, then the more influence you're going to have, particularly to a young generation, especially to a young generation. And advertisers know this, and so they, they milk that for all it's worth. And it seems to be, well, everybody's making money out of it. That just seems to be the way. The very least that you and I can be for Christ and his gospel is an influencer. If you want to use the term, we've got the best product this world has ever known. We've got the gospel of Christ that changes lives for eternity. Yeah. <laughs> And we are the influence. The Word's not going to sell that, is it? The Word's not going to advertise that. So who's going to do it? Us. Each and our every way, everyday way. We can influence for Christ. We're influencer. Maybe within our family circle. Maybe within our extended family. It may be among your neighbors or your work colleagues or on the factory floor in your classroom, your college friends, your university pals. It may be your office, your particular community. But somewhere where you are, you are an influence for Christ one way or the other, by the way. Negatively or positively. So let's make it positively. Let's be a positive influence for the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever we are, that people look at our lives and there's a positivity about Christ about us. We don't run about with a big, sour, miserable bake on us. You know, that's just, you know, it's just, it puts people off, doesn't it, you know? I remember, I wasn't long a Christian in the place where I worked. There's a wee brethren man, and he was the happiest man I ever seen in my life. I was a Christian and he really annoyed me. <laughs> he came into work and he was just so breezy and he was just going. He was, he was like every day he was like that, you know. But he was full of the joy of the Lord. He, and he influenced a lot of people because of that. Because no matter what his day was like or what work was going, it didn't matter to him. He just loved the Lord and he just wanted to show that and to do that. So, so you can be an influencer. You can, you can make a difference. You can be salt and light wherever you are. In that office where you work, in that classroom where you study, in that university where you go, I can't be there. I can't walk into your office. I can't walk into your job. I can't be there. I'm not supposed to be there. You are. God doesn't need me there. He's got you there. You're the part of his body that's there already. You're the physical manifestation of his body on earth. You're the one that's there. You're the one that can influence. You're the one that can do it. And so God has strategically placed each and every one of us in this world to be an influence for him. That's your role in the body of Christ, to influence people for the Son of God so that people are attracted to Jesus. That there's something about you, there's something about you that makes them wonder what is the difference? Why are they like that? What is it about their life that's different? Or they may say, I used to know what they were like, but now I see this. So how did that person who was like that, how did they become like this? What happened? And that influence can make them think. 
just about everybody I know that's became a believer has been influenced by another believer. It may have been a family member, it may have been a work colleague, maybe somebody, a neighbor, somebody you watched and you wondered and you thought about and it affected you and you began to think a little bit deeper about eternal things. <clears throat> Come with me to John chapter 4. <clears throat> John chapter 4, it's a lovely little story. I haven't really time to expound on it, but just we've done it in the past <coughs> several times, I'm sure. Uh, well, verse 1, Therefore, the, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now this was unusual. The Jews generally had no dealings with the Samaritans for historical and religious reasons. Uh, but Jesus always broke the mold, didn't he? And so, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asked a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans? By the way, just as an aside, Jesus must have obviously looked like a Jew. I mean, she had never seen this man in her life. But she instantly recognized him as a Jew. So he must have looked Jewish, which is a shock to some Christians, as well as unbelievers who hate Jews. Jesus was born a Jew. He was born in a Jewish family. He was reared as a Jew. He looked like a Jew. He spoke like a Jew. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, have you nothing to draw with? And the well is, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water, that fresh, clean water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She obviously misunderstood. She was still thinking about natural things. Jesus really moved on to spiritual things. Jesus said unto her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Very clear declaration of who he was. You know, there's people, there's even theologians say that Jesus never said he was, he was the Messiah. Well, I don't know what Bible they read, but that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? And at that point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman Yet no one said, why do you seek or why are you talking to her? What do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman then left her water pot, went in her way to the city, said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Could not this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. Here is an influencer. She just met the master. She started off by calling him a Jew, then calling him sir, then calling him a prophet, then calling him Messiah, and then calling him the Christ. She has gone on that journey closer and closer and closer to who he really was. Amen. And with that information, and with that excitement in her heart, she couldn't wait to go into the city and to tell the men. Didn't tell the woman. The woman wanted nothing to do with her. That's why she was at that well alone. She had a reputation, this woman. And she had to go alone. But she went into that city to tell the men. Every man that city knew who she was, knew what she was like and what she'd done. She says, come, see a man that told me everything I did. Is this not the Christ? And in the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have a food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore his disciples came to one another and said, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? <laughs> yeah, well, they were thinking about natural things too, and they should have been thinking about spiritual things. And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap uh, that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans, note this, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, who told me all that ever I did. What an influence. A whole city of men were so moved by her testimony that they came, they must see this prophet, they must meet this Messiah, this Christ, they must meet him personally. He says, it's amazing what your testimony can do. Your personal testimony can have a great influence over somebody's life. It really can, just by what you share. And that's exactly what she did. And so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed, note this, because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. 
but they came because of what she said in the first place. And in a sense, she's handed them over to him who speaks unto them, and now they've got it straight from his mouth. But it was her testimony, it was her influence that got them there in the first place, wasn't it? And so, you are to be an influencer in the body of Christ for the Lord Jesus. You're the one that can do that. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, Verse 35. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. Stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour, so it was late. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas, or a stone, or a rock, from this day forward. Notice that Andrew, when he found the Christ, and he was convinced who Jesus was, the first thing he did was find his own brother. He reached his own family for Christ. No better person to reach your family than you. Do you know sometimes, and I've, people have told me this over the years, the hardest people for me to talk to is my family. I could talk to anybody, but please don't expect me to go and talk to my da, or my ma, or my brother, or my sister. You may be the very one that will have the greatest influence over them. I've had the joy of leading my father, two uncles, cousins to the Lord. What can they say? They can only say yes or no. Better they say yes. Don't leave it until they're dying, until they're dying breath. Don't leave it. People have asked me to go visit family members who are not saved, and they could respond. It was too late. Couldn't respond. Didn't hear a word I said. And all that time, they had opportunity to share, to share the, the gospel in a simple way. First thing Andrew did was, I must find my brother. I must find my big brother. I must tell him first. I want him to know this Christ. And that was wonderful. But look at what happens, verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, his best friend, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had such a terrible reputation. Philip said to him, Come and see. 
And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This must have been a place where Philip would re, or Nathaniel would resort to to pray and, and to think about the Messiah that would come. He was a student of the Bible and the Scriptures. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Did you notice the woman influenced her community? Peter influenced his family. Philip influenced his friend. You know, there's levels of influence that you can have. You may not be the one to influence the whole community, but you may be the one to influence your friend. You may be the one to influence that family member. And so that's what the body of Christ does. Each of us has a, a vital role to play. We're almost finished. Lovely story in Second Kings chapter 5. Excuse me. Second Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him, excuse me, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. The Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to the mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Nathan went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus saith the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now can you imagine... Here is this great five-star general, the most important army man in the whole of Syria, second only to the king of Syria, a man who had wealth, who had prestige, who had status, who had maids, who had servants, who had slaves, who had money in abundance, but he was a leper. And that leprosy would destroy his life. In time, he would lose everything his wealth, his status, his standing, his inability to stand before the king. He'd lose his family. He would be put out somewhere. He'd have to wear a mask. He'd have to ring a bell like every other leper in the nation. And he'd be just to nothing. And this little slave girl had compassion on him. She didn't have to have that. He had taken her from her family. And he'd taken her from her land and from everything and everyone she'd ever known and became a slave to his wife. But she became an influencer, an influencer for God, for Jehovah. If only my master could go with the prophet Samaria, he'd be healed of his leprosy. And without getting into the whole story, it's a wonderful story 
uh, which we don't have time to read and highlight. <laughs> he went to the king, and the king wrote this letter to the, to the king of Israel, thinking that, that would be the, the protocol to do. And the king of Israel read it. He tore his garments. He thought, this man's picking a fight with me. He's thinking, I'm God. I can't heal leprosy. Who, who does he think I am? He's doing this to pick a fight with me. And then the prophet said, hey, send them to me. Let him know there's a prophet here in Israel. Let him know there's a God of Israel that will heal him. And he came, and remember what he told him to do? He didn't even go out the door. He sent out his servants and says, go tell him just to, to dip in the old Jordan. Tell him just to dip in there seven times. And of course, that great, great general, he was, <laughs> he was taken aback. He was angry, wasn't he? He was really furious. And he says, I thought he would come out, and he would wave his hands. He'd make a whole scene because of who I am. Of course, do you not know who I am? <laughs> I'm the great general of Syria. And he'd make a whole scene. No, Elijah, he didn't even, Elijah didn't even go out the door. Sent his servant out. And his man said, you know, if he'd asked you to do something great, you'd have done it, wouldn't you? Do something simple. Just, just, just go. Just go and dip in the river and see what happens. He went to the river, and he dipped seven times. And the seventh time he came up and his whole skin was like a baby's bottom, completely and utterly cleansed and cured of leprosy. What a wonderful moment that must have been. Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God because... Sorry, he returned to the man of God, he and all his aids, and came and stood before him, and he says, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said then, If not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord. Yet this thing, yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans upon my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant this thing. And he said to him, Go in peace. And he departed from him a short distance. Ah, one little slave girl had such an influence over that great general that he became a believer in the God of Israel. He became a believer in Jehovah. And at that moment, his life was radically and forever changed. He says, I will never worship another God from this moment on. I'll only worship the Lord of Israel. Glory to God. You see, an insignificant little slave girl touched an important man in the kingdom of Syria. Let me say this before we close. Several years ago, and some of you were involved in this, the Franklin Graham crusade, Billy Graham's son, came to Belfast. That was at the end of 18 to 2 years in the planning and I happened to be on the first committee that was set up to plan it. That was a big committee. And the committees got smaller as it went on until there was a tiny executive committee because it gets too unwieldy and there's too many. But I remember being right uh, in the first couple of committees. I wasn't on the executive one, but it took place over 18 months. 
And there was such planning had to go into this. And there was training, lots of training had to go into this, lots of prayer. So that on the actual occasion, that after 18 months to two years of planning, and I mean, they have a whole team, they have a hundred of a team, they have their own chaplain comes with them. And they were the best people I have ever worked for in my life, bar none. They really were. Their whole attitude was, we're here to serve you. You're not here to serve us. We're here to serve you and your churches and your community. And whenever we're finished, they said, when we're finished this crusade, because we know the talk that goes on with big evangelists, we're finished this crusade. We'll, uh, we'll publicly announce in your daily newspapers all the financials of this crusade. We'll put it in your... And they did that two weeks later. It was in the newsletter. It was in the Belfast Telegram. Nobody ever did that before. But... All that work, all that effort, and all the training that went through to all the churches that got involved, and many of you were at those training sessions, and it was all to the end that we would be able to bring people and pray for people. You had to pray for four or five people and invite them to come and be with them there. And if you're part of the, the counselors, then to go up with them whenever the appeal was made, and hundreds of people came to Christ. Such a lot of work, such a lot of effort. But they knew that if he came from America, when he come to preach, they knew by that time people would be ready to hear what he said. And I remember listening to him at the start, and within the first five minutes, he says, you're going to have to make a decision tonight. He must have said that about ten times every time he preached. You're going to make a decision tonight. In a few moments, you will make a decision tonight. And boy, they did make decisions. You know, a couple of years later, I was at the, the Moyer Missionary Convention, I was on the committee of that too. And there was a young man stood up one night. He was heading out to the mission field. And he gave his testimony. And he says, you know, I had no interest in the things of God. I had no interest in God or church or anything like that. He says, a friend of mine, he says, he plagued me. He kept at me. And he says, you must come with me. Please come with me. I want you to come to hear Franklin Graham, this, this preacher from Murray. He says, I don't want to hear a preacher from Murray. He says, come, please. He says, out of, because it was my friend, he says, I went. And he says, that night, the Holy Spirit, he says, just got a hold of my heart. And he says, I went right out to the front, and I gave my life to Christ. And that was two years ago. He says, now I'm going on the mission field. <laughs> but you see, that friend influenced him, continued with him, prayed for him, talked to him, cajoled him, coaxed him, did everything to get him there so they would hear the truth, and he responded to the truth. By the way, Bob McAllister and Alma, you know, many of you know him in here. Bob's still, he's 94 or something today, and he's still actively going strong still to this day. But he told me they spent 45, 50 years in, in the Congo. He says to me, David, he says, I have lost count, literally have lost count of the missionaries in Africa that told me personally that they were one to Christ through Billy Graham. I've lost count. And he says, that's only Africa. Never mind India or South America or everywhere. Spread far and wide. I wish I had won even 1% of all those souls for Christ that those guys have won. They have all their faults. They make their mistakes. But I tell you what, they have reaped a tremendous harvest of precious souls. The Lord needs you to be his hands. He needs you to be his feet. He needs you to be his eyes. He needs you to be his ears. He needs you to be his heart of compassion, his bowels of mercy. He doesn't have anybody else. He's not going to send angels or archangels. 
He's only got us. If we don't do it, it won't be done. And we can't say, well, it's up to the next generation. No, no, no. It's this generation. What if the Lord comes back in this generation? So we can't put it off to the next generation. There may not be a next generation. It's this generation. The last generation's passed. They're gone. It's over for them. But now the spotlight's on us. The Lord needs you. The head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. He does need you. And he wants to use you for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that as weak as we may feel, as simple as we are, as untalented or ungifted as we may be, yet somehow, some way, in your mercy, you delight in using us for your honor and your glory. Lord, help us to be simple fishers of men. Not to be complicated or difficult, but just to be simple. And help us, Lord, in our talk with her lip and with her life to be a good witness, a testimony of your grace and goodness to those around us that they may see something of the Savior in us. And so we give you thanks for this tonight and we bless you, Lord, that you have, for whatever level and degree that each of us you have sought to use and have been pleased to use, Lord, we honor you for that and help us to continue to be that and to do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk